Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, friends. Today's guest is someone who has set out to solve the frustrations of the e-commerce business. He's the CEO and co-founder of Airhouse, a startup company just out of stealth that helps direct-to-consumer companies get orders from the factory to the front door by allowing them to outsource and simplify operations and logistics. In today's episode, we're talking about easing the frustrations of shipping, operations, and logistics for e-commerce companies. We often don't hear about the trials and tribulations many founders go through when starting and running businesses. So often, all anyone wants to talk about is how much they're crushing it. But our guest today gives us a thoughtful and transparent look into what it was like to launch and run a rocket ship hot VC funded business that ultimately is forced to close. He shares the hard lessons he learned and importantly, the insights he was able to extract and later breathe into a brand new effort with his current company, Airhouse. We talk about the pain point direct consumer brands face when it comes to operations and logistics. We walk through the technology Airhouse is bringing to the table and the deep knowledge they're learning about warehouses based on their own network data that's enabling superior matching for customers. Our guest shares his goal that Airhouse will empower the solo entrepreneur to have a 20 to $30 million brand. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you. For new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Airhouse's Kevin Gibbon. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, you sound like a Canuck, but where in the world are you? Are you sheltering at home? Where? In San Francisco. Are you actually originally Canadian or is it just an accent? Uh, yeah. I think I'm getting rid of that. I'm from Vancouver, born and raised there. I've been to San Francisco about seven, eight years now. Vancouver, world-class city. I love that place, particularly because I'm a skier and jumping off point to all the cities. I'm a snowboarder, yes. Yeah, and even the Powder Highway. We did a trip a few years ago. Long-time listeners are sick and tired of listening to me talk about skiing, but... We have a skiing sponsor now too, but the Powder Highway, I got to go back because when we hit it, it wasn't 
amazing snow. It was good. It was more fun than anything, but Revelstoke and all those resorts. And then even had been to a place up near the Alaskan border years ago. Anyway. All right. But you're a Canadian engineer by trade, right? You study aerospace. Do I see that in the notes? Yeah, I worked for a defense company, Raytheon, initial job, and then also Boeing. I've always been an entrepreneur all my life on the side, early and late teens. I was like an eBay seller and then actually turned into like an eBay power seller. And I was just selling like anything I could get my hands on. But actually how I made all of my money was on engineering. Yeah. I come from a family of, I was originally an aerospace guy, but as soon as I sat through one class of statics and dynamics, I moved more towards biotech. It was too hard for me, but come from a family of Lockheed and Martin Marietta, and my brother's currently at Northrop. Awesome. I love that world. And we got SpaceX right down the road from us here in Los Angeles. So yeah, um, yeah. we've had a lot of space focused podcasts already, but by the way, eBay I tried to sell something on eBay for the first time in like five or 10 years. It's like the most outdated, horrific user experience at this point. How has eBay not been totally disrupted yet? What's, do you have any thoughts? Are you still a power seller? I am not, but it's the network effect they have. They have a marketplace and they have all the buyers. So if you're going to sell something, you have two choices. You have Craigslist or eBay. Do you want something to come to your home or do you want to ship something? That's really your options. And also on eBay, do you, versus Craigslist, do you want to have to haggle on Craigslist with people coming to your door? I used to be also be a big Craigslist seller as well. And you have people that try to haggle with you at the door after you've already discussed the price of something versus eBay. It's like the thing is sold. This is the end price. So it really depends on what you want to do. I'm a cheap bastard, affectionately known as a value investor, but one time had run into, had been at a restaurant or bar with some friends and was introduced to a new friend. He said, wait, your name is Meb? And I said, yeah, because that's a fairly unique name. You don't hear that much in Los Angeles, but the guy said, dude, you tried to buy a surfboard off me for a hundred bucks off Craigslist. He's like, I sold that thing for like a thousand bucks. He's like, I would never forget your name. And I said, oh, that's embarrassing, but nice to meet you. (laughs) Works on occasion. Anyway, Craigslist, both those business models, my God. Okay. So started out as an engineer, you had the entrepreneurship bug. You'd got involved as co-founder in a couple companies. Give us a quick timeline whirlwind on some of those companies before we get to what you're up to today. So first company was selling a ton of stuff on eBay. It wasn't a company, it was just myself. I would just get anything in quantity that I thought that I could sell for cheaper on eBay. And it worked relatively well for where I was at my in my life. So I don't know, 18 or 20 or something like that. Next company was an actual, it was a shopping app. So this is based in Vancouver. What we did is we actually sourced, this is before e-commerce was like a really big thing. So we actually sourced all the local goods from all of the different stores around you. And we would try to find you the best deal. It actually worked very well, but we actually couldn't find a business model that worked because we would send people into a store and how do we make money? 
And so that didn't work. We had a few employees in that. And then I got the real venture capital build something really big bug after I went to San Francisco. Being with so many different entrepreneurs that were just creating these like world-renowned companies. And it was infectious. It was something that I've always wanted to do something very big with my life. I've never wanted to be a clog in the machine. And I just loved it. So I, at the time, my, uh, <laughs> my girlfriend, now luckily my wife, I told her that I was just going to be moving to San Francisco. We were living together in Vancouver. She's like, okay, cool. I moved to San Francisco. I'm an engineer, so I worked for a couple of startups. My goal was really to start my next company there. And my next company, I was looking at a lot of the trends, and I'm a very, 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 very big customer-centric product person. So if the product doesn't solve such a huge problem that nobody else is doing, I'm not interested in it at all. From building it myself to even, well, actually, I don't get involved. I'm not an investor or an advisor or any of that. I have a very skill-track mind. But even anything that really interests me, I'm very much like, why are you different? And so what I saw, and this was in 2012, I saw Uber was taking off, Lyft was taking off. There was this whole control your life from your phone. Your phone is your remote control kind of trend that was going on. And I just took my unique experience from just selling a shitload of stuff on eBay. And I was like, wait, why isn't shipping this easy? Like, it's crazy. You have to, like, I remember myself, I was just going into, I was printing off labels. I was packing boxes myself. I was then going into the post office and bringing these huge lines. It was like really a terrible experience. And I was like, why shouldn't there be a service like that? So I created Ship. And what Ship did was very much we were trying to be like the Uber of shipping. It was you take a picture of whatever you wanted to ship. You enter in where you want to go. You'd sync your eBay account after you sold something. We just make it really, really easy for you to get all the information into your mobile phone. You didn't even have a printer. And then you would actually have somebody come to you the time period that you wanted. Actually, early days, it was within 20 minutes, which was amazing. And we'd pick it up, unpackaged, whatever you want. You want to show a bike, you want to show a TV, whatever you want. Just tried to completely change the market. And we had a really amazing, and actually was, I had to ship something uh, just yesterday and I had to go to the UPS store, wait in line, and it was so terrible. TLDR, the, the company did not work out. But what we did is we created something that consumers really, really loved. And it was completely different than any, anything that anybody else has created. And I just, it, it was really an amazing experience. So as far as the business goes, we were in, we actually built everything ourselves. So we built a mobile app, we built a desktop app, we built the routing software, and we also had couriers and we even had vans and we had warehouses 
and we built our own warehouse management systems because we really cared so much about the product experience. And I think that's the reason the consumers loved it so much. And so at the height, we were in five different major markets in the US. We raised $63 million of venture capital money. We had one of the most known venture capital members on our board, John Doerr, who was on the board of Google still, and early investor in Amazon and everything. Like, we really were supposed to be like the Uber of shipping. But what actually did happen was it wasn't, and looking back at it and a lot of the learnings that we had, honestly, it wasn't really a venture capital back. It shouldn't have been a venture capital back business. We had so much expenses that went into launching a new market. We had to have warehouses. We even had to have vehicles. We had to know exactly how many employees to have on a certain time. We didn't have the frequency of use that an Uber or a Lyft or food delivery companies had. So we did change users' behaviors. So like you'd ship two times a year. And it's like, that was the most awful experience of your life. And we would change it. So you'd ship four to six times a year because now you're selling like your old stroller that you had before because you just take a picture of it and pick it up. And so we had a really amazing fit with consumers. But as far as the actual economics of the business worked and how much initial investment we had to have and the lack of frequency of use and also just honestly how many people are in a single city that would ship things out. And also we didn't focus a lot on profitability early on as most venture businesses don't, but we were not a traditional venture business. We required way too much capital up front. Well, simple answer. You just asked for more capital. <laughs> so what but question? So yeah, this is a former customer, by the way, but I was exactly like what you talked about is I used it like twice, loved it. And there was a pretty low price point, right? Like it was, I mean, it was like five or 10 bucks, right? Yeah. The question in my mind was always like, and you guys may have tested this or I have no idea, but I mean, there had to be a price point at some point where you just kept jacking it up to where it made it a good business, viable business, but also you, I'm sure you would have lost customers. Did you guys experiment with pricing at all? Because I would probably would have paid even more to, to have somebody come pick up and ship stuff to avoid the post office, like you mentioned. How did that kind of play in? Or was that not even the problem? Was it just everything else involved in it as far as all the other capital expenditures and everything else? The business model actually wasn't. So upfront, we actually charged, it was like a $5 pickup fee and then we charge you for the actual shipping costs of whatever you ship. The actual business model was, is that in logistics, and this kind of goes into what we're working on now, my next company, it's all about the consolidation that you have. So you have, if you think of a UPS truck, you have a fixed cost, you have the truck, you have the driver, that's fixed cost. And the more packages that you actually can push into that truck, the lower your per unit costs go. And so there really is this economies of scale that work. 
So the $5 that we charge for pickup was a nominal fee. We actually made all the, well, we lost a lot of money, but eventually we did actually make money on the actual shipping piece that we were able to consolidate instead of picking up from you, UPS driver, FedEx driver, picking up one or two packages or whatever, we would basically consolidate all of that. We would be much more efficient on the routing piece and we'd be able to actually reduce our costs and make our margins there. That actually did hold true, but the problem really lied in that the volume that we had to have for a specific city was just higher to break profitability than we actually thought it would be. We thought that there would be more people actually shipping. And so that's what we really found. Later on, we downsized. We actually reduced to a single market in San Francisco. We focused on profitability. We went to higher volume shippers. We actually did prove profitability out for that one market. But at that time, it just, it's not a venture backable business. It's like, also, we've pumped $63 million in this business. It's just like, are you guys going to actually make it work this time? Yeah, I see you made it work in this one city. But like a lot of like startups, it's well, I would say a majority of it is momentum continuing that. And so we just lost a lot of that. I do think that, well, I wish the service still existed. I think that if you approached it in a different way, that it could be a, a, I still don't think a venture backable business, honestly, just because there's so much upfront investment in every single market. And also you have to consider the marketing aspect of it as well. How do you acquire customers? We had great work, like word of mouth from consumers, but SMBs or larger like customers, we would make way more money on. They're very, very hard to acquire. So I think it should be a business and I wish it still would be, but I don't think it's a venture backable business. And so as this was kind of going through your head, at what point, I think it would have been 2018, if my timeline is right, maybe 2017, somewhere in there, 2016, I don't know. At what point were you starting to say, okay, this is it, it's time to to sunset? Because, you know, Kevin, I'll give you a big compliment in that from someone who's invested in a couple hundred at this point, private companies have have seen a fair amount of companies decide to shut their doors. And there's two types of founders and CEOs. They're the ones that disappear into the ether. You just stop hearing from them and the company just somehow just goes away. And then there was your approach, which was, I think, very honest and the right approach. I think if you're a founder listening to this, which was just to be transparent and say, look, this is what happened. This is what's happening. And, and this is where this is going. Maybe walk us through kind of the, the decision to, to shutter the doors and kind of the final runway of ship before we jump over to uh, Airhouse. We went through two major layoffs. Well, okay. So the very first one was we decided to we raised way too much money and that was a huge mistake on my part. And we were just, we were thinking we're in the next Uber. I'm not going to lie to you. And so the very first layoff, I think we laid off 15 or 20% of the staff or something like that. I think we cut one of the markets off. 
And we're like, oh, at least still make this work. And then the next stage is like, no, this is still not working. Like we're burning way too much cash. It's not going to work. And so that's when we did the ma- like the major layoff. And we're like, okay, the only possible way that we can make this work, and this is a big risk, is that we need to prove profitability in the market. And we need to try to get more investment from that. And looking back at that now, that was like, for me personally, that was probably the wrong decision, but I had a fiduciary duty to like my investors and like they trusted so much in me and I just couldn't. So like I was trying to do whatever I possibly could. It would have been easy to walk away, not easy, but that would have been a better personal decision for me. When you sign up for being a CEO and taking on venture capital, I think like you take on a lot of responsibility. And I, I personally think that you need to really do everything you possibly can. And so that's what I did. And so even though the likelihood of success was very low, because even getting profitable in a single market and then trying to raise more money, the probability is very low because investors especially VC investors, they invest in momentum. And at that point, the momentum is completely gone. I felt just a moral obligation to everybody that my board and all the investors to try to do whatever we, we had. So I think we had 5 million bucks in the bank or something like that at that time. We're going to get San Francisco profitable and then we're going to try to raise our money. We actually did that. And it was like, an awesome feeling. We created a new product to go up market um, to these larger shippers and we were just focused on profitability and it was amazing. And it was honestly down to the very final hour. Like my idea, like we had we had one investor, one new investor that was like ready to write a term sheet to to give us another five million. And, and that for me personally would have been a very, very bad decision for me to make. But I look at myself as taking all of the investor capital and also all of the employees and everything that we've done. I mean, that was like, got to try to go for that. So like, it was actually like to the day that we ran out of money. And also we weren't like some of the other companies. Like I also could not ever... When startups go to business, especially ones that have a lot of like bills to other suppliers and everything, like you see, I won't name names, but there have been some that they just kind of be like, oh, we're done, we're done. I wouldn't do that. So I wanted to make sure that we paid everybody and all employees severance. We paid all of our suppliers and everything, but it really came down to like the last day of I'm on the road hitting up, trying to raise more money. We're operationally profitable. Like we're growing. We have, I think we had like 40 big brands in our pipeline that we were going to onboard at that time, which I'm actually surprised that we even convinced them at that because we, we it's like could have thought that we were going to go out of business, but I just had, I don't know, my internally, I just, I just couldn't do that. So at the end of the day, we had to shut it down, but luckily we were able to pay all of our suppliers, give our employees good severance, 
of, of our leases, all of those things. But it was really tough, and I tried to do it to the very end of the road and did everything I possibly could. And also the team that was with me did the same thing. That's the thing is that particularly these VCs, they're adults, they know what they're doing. And the reality is the majority of the companies that they put money into, they realize there's going to be a fair amount for whatever reason. Sometimes it's no fault of the founder. Sometimes just idea doesn't work. Sometimes it's poor management, whatever it is, they're not going to make it. So on the investor side, people, I feel like have a, a much less of a problem with the company or idea not working out than the way that people go about it and having some class and decency and honesty, particularly in America and this world, you get a second chance. And so, and third and fourth and fifth, depending on uh, what's going on. But there was a kernel of positive upside from this whole experience, which was after you guys wound it down, that became sort of the dirt or the oyster for your new idea. What was the time rising? Because it wasn't super long after that you started thinking about Airhouse, right? Day after. As soon as I was totally out of ship, I started myself and my co-founder, Sarah, who's amazing. We started, who's also at, at ship as well. We started Airhouse because we saw all of the, the 40 brands that we had in our pipeline and all of the problems that we had, but realized that the model that we were building on and that was like having warehouses and having all of these things. That was just the wrong model as far as building a very like, like what I want to build is a generational company. Like I really think that's an opportunity in logistics and operations space. And that's what I thought, excuse me, that I was building a ship. I was thinking I was going to go to consumer enterprise for any entrepreneurs that are listening don't ever fucking do that. Start with a product that you're going to scale. Focus on that and scale that. What we saw is that there was just so many of these brands that were popping up because of the democratization of e-commerce. If you think about retail, like where it went from is you had physical stores, you had your own brand, you'd have to sell into one of these buyers. They'd have to pick you personally. That'd be hard. And then everything went online. And then you then still need to get in these marketplaces, eBay and even Amazon. But still, like, how do you get noticed? All of these sort of things. And I think what has completely democratized for brands and selling things online have been things like Shopify and big commerce, and then more importantly, the distribution channels through Instagram and sharing with your friends, even through messaging and all of those things. Like how often, even yourself, like do you hear about a brand that somebody sent you on a messenger and think about like how you would have heard about that before. Somebody's going to call you up and be like, hey, I heard about this brand, whatever. It's like, now the friction is completely reduced. And so we saw all of these brands that were really struggling after they produced something, after they created a storefront, which is easy on Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, name whatever e-commerce platform you want to have. How do you then get it to your end customers? 
And so that's kind of where Airhost was born is to solve that pain point. Walk us through. You took a full one day sabbatical before your new idea. Describe what you guys do. What's the difference? So what Airhost is, is that we're basically the operations and logistics platform for direct-to-consumer or digital-first brands. So after you've sold something online, after you have your goods in, today we only work in the U.S., we basically handle everything for you. So instead of you having to ship everything out of your office yourself, instead of you having to have your own warehouse, instead of you having to deal with a very old school industry, which is called the 3PL industry, third-party logistics industry, which are basically warehouses that will store your product and then ship them out for you. We are basically that software layer on top of everything that makes everything just work very well. So I like to compare it to Stripe. So Stripe, before Stripe, could you sell online? Yes. It would take you to go into a bank. You'd have to spend four to five weeks. You'd have to have certain sales, blah, blah, all these things. And then you'd have to actually integrate with their banking software and all of that. And so that's basically what we're doing for the 3PL, so the warehousing industry. So instead of you having to have to have an engineering team to go to build into any of these warehouse systems, which are all independent, they all have proprietary software, or having to also hire an operations manager and running uh, an ERP process that's through 20 or 30 different through PLs to know that like, oh, you sell this type of product. Oh, you're a subscription box company. Oh, you require marketing material. Oh, you require refrigeration. What we basically do is that we partner on the other side with all of these different warehouses and we go very deep into their software. So you don't need to. And we turn a four to even six month process that you'd have to run into a one day process. So sign up with us, like integrate with whatever storefront you're working with. Set that will tell you where to send your inventory based on what types of products you have and your sales and everything. We'll give you standardized pricing. You only talk to us. And also we have great software for you that integrates with whatever you work with. So one comment and then a question. First, it's surprising to me that there's no one doing this or no incumbents that are already, maybe there are, have this problem solved. And it's funny, kind of, it goes back to the biggest category was we've been using Stripe, I don't even know how long, like seven years, is it fits under this category of what I call like frustration arbitrage. There's something that's just either kind of garbage or... Once you have the solution, you look back and realize it was total garbage and just didn't work and it just makes your life infinitely easier. So I'm a little surprised this doesn't exist already. And then two, I think it may be helpful for listeners if you were to just kind of walk through a very basic, almost like a case study, it can be hypothetical or real of how a company may work with you guys and kind of where this all fits in. I think that there's a few major things that we offer that actually in a brand you never could have offered yourself. So if you think of a Casper, Warby Parker, 
also their founders are investors in the company because they, they saw so much of these problems. What they had to create is what we're basically creating for everybody, but also what we can provide that not any single brand can do is first on the matching process. So with all, so there's actually over 10,000 of these different 3PL warehouses in the U.S. alone. We eventually will be going global as well. So how do you know? that you're going to be getting the right person for your actual product. And that is a ton of different things. So quality is, is actually the number one. And all of these warehouses will say that they have 99%, blah, 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 but that's all bullshit. There are a lot that actually do that, but you don't know that up front. And also because you're taking four to six months to actually onboard, your switching costs are super, super high. So that's very important. Also, like, how do you know which ones, like in the sales process, that can actually handle the type of product that you have? And there's so many different types of products and all these different things that you want. Packing slip requirements. Are you selling into online marketplace, like a Stitch Fix, that actually requires very custom things on the outside of the box, the inside of the box? They need the price tags removed. They need all these different things. Or in a apparel company that has two, 3,000 SKUs that some of these warehouses just can't handle. So I would say that on the matching process is such a huge thing initially that no brand can actually know unless you have all the brands like we have. That's kind of like the network effect that we do have. And I hate using that term network effect because it's, it's overused, but there actually is a network effect here, which is great for us. And then on the other side, if anything goes wrong, so as we're building the network, if you are with one of these warehouses that is not providing your needs, especially as we're building the network, we'll switch you out right away. You only deal with our software, but it doesn't matter. We'll switch you out next day. We'll freight all your stuff to somewhere else. That's super easy. And also I'd say actually a third point is on the customization. There's so many different types of brands that require so much customization from the return flow, from the packaging slip flow, from the packaging, custom packaging pieces. That's what we really provide through our software that we've built. Those are the things that we really provide that even as the most sophisticated brand, we're still early days, but I would guarantee you that we could do it better than any call it 20 to 50 million dollar brand today so where we kind of fit in in the marketplace is somebody that and we aim for growth brands somebody that's looking pre-launch probably taking some venture capital looking to really scale it up but we've actually seen a really good fit in like the mid-market piece in like the 20 to 50 million dollar brands as far as customization matching process and then if things go wrong switching of them as far as the other question that you had walking through just an example of, of a brand so we had actually one of the brands that i use a lot it's a cbd gummies because now we all have anxiety it helps and so they actually had issues with temperature control and so their initial 3PLs they were working with, they really didn't have a lot of 
flexibility in that. And what we were able to do is move them to one of our other 3PLs that had just room temperature control. There's a number of different temperature controlled warehouses that are up there. So you go from the ones that can provide frozen steaks to you overnight and all of this. And that's very expensive. And this company obviously did not want to pay that. So we had one of our partners that had a temperature controlled room that we were able to not have to pack any dry ice with or anything like that. And they were able to, as far as onboarding goes, sync their, they had a Shopify account, sync their Shopify account. They did most of their sales through Shopify. We told them exactly where to send their products based on the needs of their product. And they were able to not have their stuff melt in other warehouses. And then also we know just from the data of all of our customers, which warehouses have, have the best quality. So quality is a number of different things. It's getting stuff out on time, which every single warehouse will promise they will do whatever, but that's the sales process. And, and because switching costs are so high, a lot of them don't actually hold up to that. So we know that for sure. They also have like following packaging requirements. So this brand specifically, they had things that they wanted, inserts they wanted to have in for specific customers. They have custom packaging. They're not trying to be a commoditized product. You buy it on Amazon, right? They're trying to create a real brand. And so those are the things that we can provide just based on our network of whereas we work with. But I'd also say there are other, to your other question, are there other people doing this? There are other people doing this, but I say that the approach that we take is that you only work with us. We will take full responsibility. We have the technology. If anything goes wrong, if there is something that didn't get to a customer, we will refund, like we'll refund it. If there's anything that goes wrong with a warehouse, we'll switch you overnight. There are technology only solutions that will be like, we'll connect you to this 3PL's technology, but they won't take all of those things on. And also the account management piece also is a really big thing, but in the background, and I know your listeners are investors, we're looking, in my experience, building ship, building a complete warehouse management system, know exactly, I know how to manage people, I know how to build the software to actually do all of these things, we solve all those problems, I never want to do the management people part again as far as warehouse piece, but we know how to solve all of these different problems that will occur. And our goal is to automate everything in the background. And so today there's a ton of things that even in the background, even, even well, not myself anymore, because we have a larger team, but we'd be emailing Excel spreadsheets and all of these things, all of that stuff could be automated. And that's really what our goal is to, scale up and really like dominate this industry. I mean, and I imagine as far as industries go, warehouses, one would think they're probably stuck in old school paper and pen and a bit calcified. What is the business model for you guys? Do you charge a 
per shipment fee? Is there a storage fee? Is it a percent commission? How's it all come together? It's really the, the same sort of structure that you would pay these warehouses yourself. We're not looking to be the lowest cost provider because the value that we provide, what we're doing is instead of an entrepreneur having to hire an operations manager, you don't need to. And also if you are a 10, 20 million, $50 million brand, like we just give your employees more leverage. And so while we could be, as the business model actually does work, we could be the lowest cost provider if we wanted to be. So we could compete on price. We're not trying to be. So standard storage piece, obviously, how many pallets you're storing, whatever's monthly charge. And then it'll be a pick pack fee that you're going to be paying. So how many items do you have per package? We'll charge you that. So that's basically the labor that it actually costs for whoever's packaging it. It's still today people, but eventually it will be more automated. And also that's part of our, we're not picking winners or anything like that. We're looking to, to work with the best warehouses. So I even saw an article, GD.com was moving like a thousand, a hundred thousand units per day. And they had four employees like, We'll eventually work with those warehouses. We're not looking to pick winners for anything. The third price is on just the shipping cost. So where are you sending it? How big is the item? All of the standard stuff that you would pay. We're not looking to be any more expensive, nor are we looking to compete on price today. Are there any segments of e-commerce that you think are, are particularly great for you guys other than, than CBD gummies? Is it fashion? Is it electronics? Or is it really everything? It's really anything outside of anything customizable. So I'd say that if you are making your own product in your own warehouse, so give you an example. I don't know if you know this brand. Do you know what a one wheel is? Have you seen those rolling around? Is it the unicycle? No, it's not. It's not the unicycle. I was going to say, because I saw a bunch of those in Vancouver last time I was there. <laughs> so the one wheel is, think of it as like an electric skateboard, but it has one wheel in the middle. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm talking about. I saw a bunch of those in, oh, uh, yeah. in Vancouver. It's yeah, like yeah, a, they, yeah. they call them like a hoverboard, but it's not. It's just like two pegs in a wheel, right? Yeah. So I'm a huge snowboarder. That to me, it feels like snowboarding around the city. That's actually probably my best purpose I've ever made. So for them, they manufacture this stuff in Santa Cruz. They have their own warehouse. It would not make sense for somebody that's manufacturing their stuff domestically to actually use us if they already are having their warehouse. Just because the, why not just box it up? Like you're already manufacturing stuff. Why not just box it up and actually put a label on it? But that's actually the smallest part of e-commerce. The majority of it is manufactured overseas, importing it to the U.S. and then distribute it from there. That's why the 3 pill industry, I think it's over a trillion dollar industry today. So I'd say anything customizable is really not that great of a fit for us. So you guys officially launched, I believe, to the public, was it this year? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the launch and what the uh, on-ramp has been so far. 
Yeah, we launched in, wait, what month is it right now? August? <laughs> God damn it. Sorry, Kevin, back to work. Yeah, I know. We launched in July of 2020 and we've been working on this kind of stealth for the previous year and a half before because we do have a two-sided marketplace and we really wanted to make sure that we had the right partners and the right product and everything. It is a much more difficult thing to launch than just like if you're a SaaS play kind of thing. But we, then when we felt more comfortable that we were in a place that we want to go public, get more customers on, more partners on everything. The launch went amazing. We have more customers right now than we can onboard just because of the... I say this in, in a good way, and I hope that your audience would also agree with this. On the supplier side, because we're so product and customer focused, onboarding a lot of customers to a lot of these different warehouses is difficult. And so we actually, we've had too much demand basically as far as customers go. And so right now we're looking to onboard very large warehouses that are having hundreds of locations around the U.S. We're really constrained right now on that side of the two-sided marketplace, which for any investor, that is actually the better thing to have versus not having enough customers that you want. So it's been amazing. The launch has been great. The feedback we've got from the largest warehouses in the world have been, oh my God, this is such a needed thing in the industry because we don't know how to even talk to these new brands. We don't know how to how to source them. Also, we know our technology is built in like the 80s. And what's happening is these brands are having to create these schemes to do all these things on spreadsheets and all this stuff. And so what we represent is that we're trying to just really automate all of these processes. So it's been great from both the demand and supply side since we've launched. I imagine the warehouses eventually themselves could be a good referral source for you guys too. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about where the team, where you are. I imagine, given everything we've talked about, I know the answer to this already, but what's been your approach to raising capital, bootstrapping this business? Give us a summary. The date we've raised $5.5 million. I guess I call that a seed. We did it in a few different tranches. A lot of ex-ship investors as well, even writing blank checks just based on what we've done and our experience and everything like that. Half the, well, I guess a little less than half the team is ex-ship people that I brought on. And also Sarah, my co-founder, she's amazing. I'd say that where we're, I'm, I'm really good at some fundraising, product engineering side, operations side, and she's just an amazing B2B marketer. And so we've had no shortage of customers at all. And the team is still pretty small. We're only 10 people. Engineering team, also very small. And this is kind of the opposite approach that I took to ship as far as raising as much capital as I possibly could and, and scaling up. I think at one point we had a 30-person engineering team, which is just like huge for where we were at as far as revenue and everything goes. And so we're taking the opposite approach to be capital efficient, but knowing when we hit 
the things that we need to hit to be very aggressive. I want to own this market. I see the network effects that actually do happen from both. There's the cost advantage on the consolidation side, but also just building the network as well. So we're close to really starting to ramp that up. So we're not raising additional capital right now, but we will be shortly. And as I mentioned, when we first started, I want to build something generational. I think that there should be a strike for logistics, a Shopify for logistics, an AWS for logistics, all of those different things. And I think that with our previous experience, my previous experience, that we are in a very, very good place to really build that. There's a great Robert Downey Jr. quote back in his parting days. He has a quote where he says, remember the stitches. And I think he's referring to, and I don't know, remember if it's true or not, like an ex-girlfriend stabbing him or oh, slashing him with God. a knife. But the point being is that the scars you learn so much from and help define you and guide the future. As you look out to the horizon, what are some of the like kind of main goals you hinted at a potential global expansion at some point in the future? What are some of the other ideas or things you're thinking about? I know just the blocking and tackling and onboarding more than you can handle. But after that, what's the plans? I just want to make it easier for people to launch these brands. One of my goals is to like empower a single entrepreneur to have like a 20 or $30 million brand that they can just make money while, while, while they sleep. And there's a lot of different products that help you do that. But I think that there's not one right now on the operations logistics side that actually does that. So that's kind of the piece of the pie that, that I think that we fit really, really well into. Also, I would say as a second, so I guess I'm a third time entrepreneur, the last company failed in spectacular fashion. And me personally, I have a lot to fucking prove. I'd say that I think that's why, that's another reason why I think it's very smart investors wanted to invest as well. You think of Travis from Uber, think of his like early failure at Scout. What was the name of that company? Whatever that was, that he, he lost and he was sued by all the record companies and everything. And he had a chip on his shoulder. I don't think I have as big of a chip on my shoulder that it, Travis does. I think that the wanting to prove to be successful is like really what drives me and also just providing a lot of solutions for customers. So other things that are on the horizon, I think integrating a lot of these things that are very, you think of you're going to launch a brand. Okay. What do you do today? You, you probably go to a Shopify consultant and they would, or a brand or something, they build your brand, they build it in Shopify. And then you'd have to add like 10 different apps to make it all work and like all these different things. I think for us, we want to try to eliminate as many of those possible things. So like returns, for example, is a great example. Like why do you have to contact a customer support agent to return something and they send you this label that's taking up time and somebody's having to hire that person, like that should be all automated. And with us like controlling the full stack from like the warehouse and everything, that's like super easy to do. That's just one example of a lot of different things that we want to do. 
but we want to approach it in like a technology way. As much as I love Flexport and Ryan, and I'm not sure if you are familiar much about their company at all, I'll say this just because Ryan actually put this in a blog post. They took the approach that they didn't automate enough things early on, and they scaled out their people, their operations team, and that's how they solve things. So if you are looking to use their product to get things to move around the world, they have a team of people that are calling people and faxing stuff and doing all those things. That's kind of the opposite approach that I want to do and, and kind of why we've been a little, we're now two years in, why we haven't super exploded because we wanted to get the model right initially. And that's why we held off our launch and everything like that. And so we're looking to really create the foundation to really explode because the logistics and also the brand industry is so big. There's no constraint for demand. That's not going to be a problem. It's really going to be about the product and both scalability and quality. And so that's what we're really focused on. And then just knocking off things for customers. They don't have to do them themselves. I already have a few brands that would probably benefit from what you guys are doing. I'll send you later. As you look back, this has been pretty short for Airhouse. We like to ask the founders, what's been the most memorable moment of this experience, uh, given what you've been up to with your two, three, four, five different businesses? Feel free to include any of those as well. But anything come to mind could be good, bad, in between. COVID. COVID. Has oh, we didn't even talk about COVID. <laughs> what's, COVID. What's this year been like? Our business upside down in good and bad ways. So in the good way, we've seen even our existing customers just explode. 100% month-over-month growth, just crazy. And so that's been the good piece. But on the other side, we have a two-sided marketplace. On the supply side, warehouses can't handle that. The delays they were having, two to three days to get things shipped out, which normally are, are going to be same day, that means our customers, the brands, not going to be happy, and then their customers are not going to be happy. And then we also had the shipping carriers that they also had delays because they just were overwhelmed. And then the reason is because it's based on people today. It's based on knowing what your volume is going to be, which like normally it is pretty predictable. That's why you can get something from FedEx and they'll say, it's going to be four or five days and it's going to be four to five days because they know how much volume they're going to get out of that. But when it just explodes, everything just crumbles. And the amount of issues that we've had with both our partners and the carriers have been crazy, which is no fault of our own, but also we need to own that as well. And so that's been extremely difficult to deal with. I've even heard of, I think it was DHL, one of the carriers, they were not even taking any new accounts from other people because that's how overwhelmed they were with all of the volume. It has gone down, but trying to explain that to your customers where they're like, my business is exploding, you're handling everything. 
it's just that was been I would say in any entrepreneur's like journey, despite like with a successful company, there's going to be luck. And I'd say that for us, that is going to be our, it is a short term pain that we're having right now because we're having a lot of our suppliers that are dealing with a lot of issues. And that's totally understandable. But e-commerce is going to be completely changed forever. Look at, it was a Morgan Stanley report that said that it was, I think it's going to, after all this is over, whenever the hell that is, e-commerce is going to be, I think, like 30%, 35% of retail. It was like at 15% before. And that would have maybe taken like 10 years. The acceleration of just the market for good, even after COVID is over, because people now are like, the people that, that were going and buying stuff, they're like, well, it's so easy to buy online. I never used to buy online before, all, all of the stuff. I think that is going to be like the luck that we are going to have, but the pain initially, but it still is difficult. You know, it's funny, we've had a handful of guests on the show over the past six months that have been in various stages, mostly that have benefited from what you're talking about. Grove was a good example. Curtsy was a more recent one. Where are we in sort of the process with you guys? Is that mostly resolved? Are you seeing light at the end of the tunnel or are those challenges persisting? I think we're almost at the end of it, but we're still seeing like, even in some of our warehouses, like we're seeing, I think this is a few weeks ago, but so relevant, like people that are having COVID and then they're doing their best to socially distance, but everybody that's in their like their pod that they work in, they're having to like quarantine them for a period of time. And it's just kind of crazy. So I'd say that we're almost, I, I don't know what this virus is going to do, so I can't really predict, but it seems to be getting better. The good thing with logistics is that it's mostly people today. And it's about predictable volume. And so when you see massive spikes in volume, you're going to see, especially like a big peak, you're going to see like really big plays. And so that's why you'll, you'll see the like, even Amazon had this exact issue. They used to see Prime, even today, they're still dealing with this issue. But the thing is, is that they will deal with that. Well, especially with the unemployment rate where it is, they'll bring people on to then even out things. So we are seeing those delays actually be reduced as they know what the new normal is. And also, I think that there was a huge spike in, what was it, May? Like a huge spike, and then it's kind of came down. Both the warehouses and the carriers have been able to hire more people and do all those things. Until there is a second wave, I think that we're good. If there is a second wave, I, I, I don't know how to predict that. But I think we're getting into a better place now. I hope so. Maybe we'll all be taking the Russian vaccine soon. We'll see. Oh, God, yeah. This has been such a accurate, fun, sweaty palms story of being an entrepreneur. We often say on the podcast, the, the biggest compliment you can give a company or a person or in my world, investing is simply survival. So it's fun to watch this rebirth of this new company and success that you guys are starting to have. It'll be fun to watch in the coming years. 
people want to find out more, if they're a booming brand that wants to chat with you guys, where should they go? Airhost.io is our website. Great. Simple. Well, we'll send you a few too. Spell it as it sounds. Listeners, Kevin said he'd give you free fees for a whole year if you tell him you mentioned the Med <laughs> Faber show. I'm yes, just kidding. Exactly. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Matt. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>